It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Welcome to the Talent Talk Radio Show. I'm on the road today, so doing the show uh, remotely, but we have two uh, fantastic guests uh, lined up today. Hopefully, uh, you'll enjoy uh, today's show. So let me give you a little insight on how the show works. Um, we have generally you know, two really great leaders on the show. Sometimes they're CEOs, sometimes they're HR leaders, sometimes they're you know, just anyone who's in sort of this space that can teach us something about talent or we can learn something about what makes them talented. So I really have this, you know, privilege of meeting a lot of these people at different events and conferences, uh, maybe through LinkedIn, whatever it may be. And uh, as I've kind of identified them, I bring them on the show and really designed it to give you an opportunity to listen in on some of those topics that maybe we might talk about or of interest to them and, you know, give you something to think about down the road. So Talent Talk is on every uh, Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. It's live. And as I mentioned, uh, we mentioned earlier at the top here, you can get it on uh, podcasts, on iTunes. You can get it on any device or uh, browser through iHeartRadio. We've amassed a huge following. Over uh, 300,000 of you have come in uh, last week, which was great, uh, right before the holiday, and listened to one of our podcast feeds. So big thank you to everyone who's following the show regularly, tuning in, sharing, uh, giving us suggestions. We really appreciate all the love. So if you have a question uh, for one of my guests or you have a suggestion or you know, anything else you want to share with us, just go on Twitter, type it in, add that hashtag talent talk so we can find it. You also have room to add the at people G2. We'd love you for doing that as well. And my producer, Mike, can try to feed me any of the questions I hear for today. But let's go ahead and get to my, uh, my guests. They will be, uh, friends Gilbert. He's the director of deliberations for Corn Ferry, uh, Future Step. And then we'll have, um, uh, Jack, uh, well, I'm going to guess here, uh, Gottlieb. I'm probably saying it wrong, but maybe, maybe not. Well, I might owe uh, the producer Nickel after the end of the show. Uh, but he's the founder and CEO of the Total Solutions Group. Jack will join me uh, in the second half of the show. So let's go ahead and get to friends. Uh, welcome. Hello. Welcome to the show. Why don't you uh, tell everyone a little bit about yourself, uh, your, your company. I'm sure most people are probably familiar with your company, but maybe you talk specifically about what, what your work is and, and uh, what you're doing there. Sure. Well, first of all, Chris, thank you very much for the privilege of being on the show. I mean, you've been running a great show for a while, so thank you. Yeah, for me, I run North American operations for Corn Ferry Future Step, which means I have the pleasure of serving a very large team of recruiters, researchers, sourcers, recruiting coordinators that do both everything from executive search all the way down to high-volume recruiting. So it's kind of a real joy. It also gives me the, the real neat opportunity to kind of see 
you know, talent acquisition across not only North America, but also the globe and seeing what people are hiring, how we're hiring, what are the challenges. Uh, you know, and as you can imagine, you know, having an opportunity to serve people in the talent acquisition field is, is a pretty fun group to be working with. Yeah, absolutely. And it can be a, you know, uh, ever changing world and kind of a bit fast paced, uh, kind of changing with as the labor market changes. And a lot of us are kind of always looking for clients, but I think what you, you're doing from a recruiting standpoint really does change based on what the needs of the market are. So it's a really interesting space. What, what do you feel are some of the keys to being successful at that talent acquisition model? You know, honest, I think the, the key is, and this is where the industry is really starting to change, is it, it used to be, you know, finding people was the trick, right? It was kind of the whole joke about, you know, can you find the purple squirrel, right? And now, you know, I don't think that's going to be a challenge. Uh, you know, a lot of people have access to the Internet, the open web. There's a whole lot of inter- you know, recruiting tools out there. And so now the challenge, I think, going forward for successful talent acquisition is going to be, can you tell great from good? Right? You know, when you get and you're looking for a data scientist, how do you tell a good data scientist from a great data scientist? And I think that's what's going to be the difference because that challenge is going to be families, are becoming more discreet. I mean, just think about recruiting. You know, it used to be you're a recruiter. Now it's you're an agency recruiter, you're a high-volume recruiter, you're a technical recruiter, you're an executive recruiter. Every job is becoming more and more discreet and requires functional expertise to do. And as a result, I think it requires a lot more functional expertise to figure out who's a great candidate. Uh, and that's not an easy puzzle. A great candidate. You know, what goes into that? Is that finding the best person at that job or how much of that maybe equation is also finding the right person for that company that you're also trying to place them into? That's an awesome question. And I think the answers are going to change. Um, you know, but historically over the last 10 years, uh, you know, kind of the OD world has done a lot of research on how important cultural fit is. Uh, and there is, there is little doubt now, uh, scientifically that cultural fit, you know, it, you know, and I've seen studies that go anywhere from 60 to 80 percent in terms of long-term success. It is, that part is really, really key. You know, probably the best example and for listeners who want to research this, look for the studies around realistic job previews. Those are usually one of the number one predictors. So simulations are tough to do, tough to implement. Yeah, they're not easy, but they've shown to have the best capability. Well, a large part of realistic job previews is not only what the job is functionally, but culturally what that company is like to work at. You know, now over time that may change back as functional you know, roles become more discreet. But right now, I'd say 60% of it's cultural fit, 40% is functional capability. So much of it in TV, we saw TV in the movies, we, we know about it from personal examples. You, you see up where people go into one company and they don't do well. They don't have a good experience, they're not very productive, yet they go somewhere else and they do great. And we even see this example in sports. You know, the right fit can be a huge, and yet it seems like it's in my opinion, one of the most ignored things about bringing people in. It's, well, just get me the best person, just find me the most talented. And we do so little to try to understand whether or not they're going to be that, that right person. And I'm sure there's some great examples of some good, you know, some great companies that are doing a good job of this. But would you agree that a majority of the companies out there hiring are really sort of neglecting this important area? I think they are uh, now, in, and it's, it's kind of an unfair statement to say that. Um, 
because I realized at the end of it, most people's safety valve, right, in terms of protecting their culture or doing cultural fit is either they're recruiters, right, that are doing screens or you've got hiring managers, right? So the hope is most companies have their people aligned as to what that culture is supposed to look like, right? Yeah, the, the challenge is I don't think a lot of companies, when they go to market, are able to do that well. Uh, in terms of how they're doing their recruiting marketing, how they're establishing their value proposition. I think there's a whole lot more that can make their lives easier and increase their qualified candidate pool. Gets into, you know, the employer value proposition. So, you know, trying to develop that in the right way. Maybe what were some, some of the things that you think that typically give a company a competitive advantage in that area of really, you know, getting that value proposition down right? Well, this is a fun area because it's, it's interesting because there, there's a couple things that make up in a company's, you know, employer value proposition or, you know, kind of their employer brand, right? You know, so one is, you know, what's their brand look like, right? Is it a well-known brand? Is it a marquee brand? Is it an unknown brand, right? So that's kind of piece number one. Piece number two is what's the compensation package look like? You know, is it short-term? Is it long-term? Is it hourly? You know, how do they fit going in with the market? You know, what are the benefits looking like? Are there perks? You know, third is the nature of the work. You know, is it challenging work? Is it something interesting? The fourth that makes up value proposition is, you know, future opportunity. You know, is the company growing? Is there a lot of development in that role that somebody can be looking forward to? And then the last piece, this is kind of an interesting piece that we found in our studies that kind of makes up the fifth element of value propositions is what's the, the coworkers like, right? You know, and... All five of those are things that make up a value prop. Now, the interesting piece is that companies really need to have kind of that honest moment to go, we're not going to have all five, right? It'd be pretty much impossible to have all five. But they need to figure out, okay, what are the one or two things that become their competitive advantage that allows them to attract people? And figure out, okay, how do you accentuate that in your advertising, your marketing, your website? You know, a great example is, um, you know, and this is always kind of a fun one. I'll give you two. So one is, you know, Hershey's, right? If that's a great example where there's a great consumer brand, but if you ask people, what's it like to work at Hershey's? And what do you think that you get being an employee of Hershey's? You probably have a lot of people going, I'm not real sure. Yeah, that's an example of where someone would want to say, okay, what are those two or three things that you would want to do? But I'll give you kind of a contrary example of this. Three years ago, the NSA did this, and it was a great example of of going after their, their value prop, which was they like people that love puzzles. So they sent out a Twitter uh, that was encrypted. You know, it just looked like garbage group, right? So they sent it out, and everyone was kind of trying to figure out what it was. And then they sent out a second one. And it was a different type of uh, encrypted tweet. And then they sent out a third one. Between all three, they used different ways of encrypting it. And when you were able to unencrypt them, it told you where the queer fare was. And it was a great example of leveraging and recognizing we like people who like puzzles. Right, you know, just for fun, and yeah, that was a that was an example of a company who really kind of figured out it was the challenge of the work that they knew was going to attract their people. Well, that's a really fun example, and you know, if you have those kind of highly technical people, or you can do some of that, you know, that can really be important. I, I kind of then reflect back on maybe 
looking at the the average worker out there in the average you know company um, and one of the value propositions that I don't see companies do enough of is you always hear about sort of the the reason people leave is generally because of their manager because of who their direct boss is they don't like that person if they can't get along with them very well if they're not motivating them or helping them or developing them that you know that they won't stay. So have you ever seen companies use as a value prop who that person's boss might be? Sort of not only, you know, highlighting the company, but highlighting who who who, who runs that department, who their direct, you know, kind of boss would be as a highlight? Not at a systemic level, uh, but th- that is absolutely a tactic that good recruiting departments will use, right? And it depends on, you know, if that director or vice president or executive is really good at selling people. Uh, you know, are they a name that someone would want to work with? Right. It, so I think that one is is a little more uh, situational in in nature. Uh, you know, in terms of you know who they get an opportunity to work with. But if you're if you're a good recruiter and you know one level up, there's somebody that's you know really well known. They should absolutely leverage it. I think that's a good idea. No, one of the things I was thinking about just in, in having you on and, and your company and some of the things that you're known for doing. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of people sort of when talking to them you kind of realize they don't really have a workforce plan really in in for the organization it's maybe hodgepodge or it's you know in theory it's not really something written down or, or overly formalized Can you maybe talk about some of the elements you think are important to a good workforce plan and you know what, what really needs to be in there if companies gonna go back and examine doing this formally and this is not an easy puzzle, Chris. I mean, the, the, you know, there's there's been a lot of hype in the HR space about workforce planning, and I think I think we've done a poor job in preparing the HR field and knowing how complicated this is. I mean, to, to give you an idea and just a, a, a small plug for a group that's been working this, but you know, a lot of people aren't even aware that you know there's an international standards organization that's working on HR standards and. They just released the strategic workforce planning standard, and it was headed up by an amazing person who did the standard for Australia. Well, the reason they figured strategic workforce planning out in Australia is they realized they had a major population in skilled earth that they were going to be running into from a demographic standpoint. So the government had to get involved in their workforce planning efforts and getting companies in line with here's the roles that we have to go after. So, yeah, I just use as an example of, A, just know workforce planning is not easy. Uh, and there's kind of two levels of operational you know, planning. You know, there's the one, which is the 12-month, you know, what I call an operational workforce plan. And that's the easier one. That is you know, taking by department or job family and figuring out what your turnover is. And you can kind of predict you know, okay, here's what our opens are going to be, just based on, you know, natural turnover rates. And that's one that somebody could do pretty easily and say, okay, on a population of 500, you know, I may end up with 25 people that we need to find, right? And and they can start trying to pipeline against that uh, and understanding what their demand is. The, the bigger issue is the strategic workforce planning. And, yeah, the, the challenge on that front is – you know, not necessarily the methodology, but building the relationships inside the organizations to understand where the large changes inside of a company are going to go. Because it's it's not normal turnover that's going to create a problem from a talent acquisition perspective. Yeah, that's not going to be the emergency trails. So the, the emergency trails are going to be, 
we're opening up a new market. You know, we're trying to get into a new product area. You know, we're acquiring a company. We need to do a divestiture. And those are kind of those, you know, seismic changes in an organization. Those are really where the workforce planning needs to occur and where the most strategic value can be done. And so as a result, those are ones where you've got to have relationships at the right levels to know and get input as to what's happening two, three, four years from now. Yeah, so the, again, there's those two things, right? So A is the operational one, which is you know, kind of your turnover prediction report. And then you've got more of that strategic workforce planning one. Uh, does that make sense, Chris? Yeah, I think so. And I really like the example of we went to Australia in there. I mean, we, at some level, it's probably important for governments and local agencies to be involved in that at some level as well. Because we probably could have avoided a few of our kind of problem problem child cities in in our country if we had done a bit more workforce planning on what we were going to need and what people were going to need before they got to the problem they were now no longer viable in the economy that as it was changing so this is some kind of fascinating things to think about for companies for organizations for for government agencies and whoever to kind of cooperate and figure out how do we have the right people ready to go when it's the right time as our economy shifts and changes and, and grows yeah, and Chris, I mean, one other piece on that, I mean, just to give everyone just why this issue is going to be even critical over the next 10 years is the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, you know, between, you know, 2014, you know, allow me to use rough numbers, there's, there's a working population of about 155 million people in the U.S. And the predictions are that it's going to be 166 million in 2024, right? So only an 11 million person increase in terms of the working population. Well, if you look at normal job growth, you know, we're talking 100, 100, 200,000 jobs a month. And you go, if we're going to do 3% GDP growth every year, and you allow me to use a little bit of bad math and say, okay, that's got to be a 3% increase in workers. Well, if we've only got 10 million new workers over the next 10 years, that's only three years of GDP growth before we start running into a major issue from a workforce scarcity issue. Mm-hmm. So that workforce planning piece is going to become, you know, and a lot of people are probably listening are experiencing it and in specific roles. I mean, I know the manufacturing sector, there are half a million jobs that are unfilled right now because they can't find skilled labor. It's going to be more of an issue. It seems to be keep uh, having these cycles between not, you know, having enough labor and having too much labor, not enough jobs, and um, be nice if someone could figure out the right, just the right uh, equation for us to maybe kind of slow some of that down. We could sit in the middle a little longer, but <laughs> I know um, one of the uh, articles that I kind of picked up on that I liked when we were kind of looking at at you as we were getting ready for you to come on was um, looks it was called social media plus recruiting equals adverse impact and then parentheses risk of so so many people talk about the benefits of social media as a recruiting tool um and we've often talked about maybe some of the the, the adverse issues as well and some of the potential problems you can run to it maybe you can get your perspective and kind of share some points in the article had and how many social me- media recruiting you know might come with its own sort of, sort of set of risks and issues that people might want to think about okay yeah, and I mean, I think, and this is a fun topic. I think it's it's going to become a, a bigger issue over time. Is 
Yeah, and I, and I think, yeah, just for context, everyone may be aware, you know, there's kind of two types of discrimination, right? There's adverse treatment, you know, which is you're intentionally treating someone poorly, right? And then there's adverse impact, which is regardless of what your intentions were, somehow there's a discriminatory impact. You know, a certain, you know, population of uh, is not getting fair representation is, is typically how adverse uh, impact is being described. And so what, what's happening is there's been this real push over the last 10 years in the recruiting world of use social media, use social media, use social media. And it, it is absolutely a, a wonderful outreach. You know, my article was talking about is I'm, I'm not sure people are really aware of how skewed some of the demographics are on some of those websites. So I'll give you an example. So like one of the, the popular ones that, you know, you, you hear a lot of people talk about is Pinterest, right? You know, that's one of, you know, you know, ERE did an article on this is kind of one of the next new ones to be doing. Well, what's interesting is in 2014, uh, and this is according to Pew Research, only 13% of men use Pinterest and 42% of women use Pinterest, right? So highly skewed female. When you go to ethnicity, 32% white non-Hispanics use Pinterest. Only 12% are black non-Hispanic and 21% Hispanic. All right, so it, it doesn't take a lot to go if you have, you know, and this is where the article was kind of going is saying, You've got to be intentional about what your recruiting marketing strategy is going to be. It would be, you know, and this is kind of a, a bad example, but let's say you solely advertised your jobs on Pinterest. You obviously would be discriminating against men from a demographic perspective. You know, so, you know, an easy way to think about social media is the same way if you were looking at print advertising. You know, if you solely advertised your jobs in GQ, Somebody in HR, you know, antenna would rightfully go up and say, "We have an issue here, right? This is going to create some sort of adverse impact." Well, the demographics are skewing enough on these social media platforms that, at a, you know, a very real point, it's not going to be long before someone's be able to figure out what the adverse impact on those medium channels are going to be. Too, uh, you know, as of now, there there hasn't been an adverse impact case on, from an EEOC perspective, uh, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if one happens in the next five years. Yeah, and we've been waiting for that because there's so many things from an adverse impact standpoint that you can see about people, right? Every state's a little bit different on what they protect, but if we mm-hmm. used California as an example, I mean, it's got a lot of protections. New York has a lot. You know, whether or not someone is pregnant, whether or not someone, what their religious views are, their political views are, all these different things are protected. And yet, if you go on certain sites, you can see all of that information. So are you using that against them to not consider them? Are you, you know, not giving them that interview because you're a Republican and they're a Democrat or vice versa? I mean, some interesting issues there. I think you're right that there are some risks and we may, we may see some litigation. The courts may end up making up you know, our minds on this one here in the near future. (laughs) Um, You know, go ahead. ahead. Well, I was going to say, you you, you went to the the next level, which is, you know, what's the recruiter exposed to? And on that front, there absolutely have been some EEOC cases where, yeah, companies or organizations have been sued because they've been able to prove that a recruiter looked at somebody's Facebook profile and saw, you know, what would have been protected class information. And those have become very valid lawsuits, uh, you know, which kind of raises that second point of, you know, are your recruiters trained well enough to know that if you're letting them look on social media, they're seeing 
information that would not show up on a resume. How are they going to deal with it? That that issue is, is no longer theoretical. It's real. For a lot of employers, that could be really scary. So, uh, you know, we have just a little bit of time left. I want to make sure we get in our last two questions. The first one is, uh, what are you reading right now, and can you tell us about it? I have a tendency to really love uh you know, talent acquisition and specifically analytic stuff. So there's a great book I'm reading uh, by Ben Weber uh, called People Analytics. And it's really kind of cool because he's going through and looking at the social network analysis piece. And, yeah, and some people may remember a couple of years ago, Guild, uh, you know, as a company, kind of started creating this theory of social artifacts, right? Saying, you know, people of a certain job function live in certain ecosystems and how do you find them uh yeah so an example would be if you're looking for a data scientist to kind of stay with the theme you, you know you look on kaggle uh you know which is an you know an open-ended uh, data scientist contest site uh this book gets a lot more into what does that look like how do you measure it how do you research it uh which is kind of cool yeah, definitely. And don't forget, we'll put that uh, link up uh, to the book on the blog summary of this uh, show on uh, peopleg2.com on the blog section. Uh, final question, though, is how can people learn more about your company, Corn Ferry, uh, or about you if they're interested? Easiest way is just feel free to get a hold of me. Uh, I mean, we've got a great organization of folks. I mean, obviously, you can go to cornferry.com. And my email address is franz, F-R-A-N-Z, dot Gilbert, G-I-L-B-E-R-T, at cornferry.com. Well, friends, it was a real pleasure having you on the show. Really appreciate you being here, and hopefully we can have you come back and give us an update at some point. That'd be fantastic. Thank you very much. All right. We'll be back after this quick commercial break with our second guest, uh, Jack uh, Gottlieb. Or Gottlieb. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. As a reminder, you can go to talenttalkradio.com and listen to past episodes, as well as find us on the podcast portion of iTunes or iHeartRadio on any platform or device. 
Uh, really excited to have uh, so many of you come in. Over 300,000 of you came in uh, last week and uh, listened to a show, at least one or if not more. So, again, really appreciate it. Uh, my next guest uh, is uh, Jack uh, Gottlieb. I screwed up his name about 10 times. I think I got that one right. So, my apologies it, preemptively here to Jack, but he's the founder and CEO of the Total Solutions Group. Um, don't forget to tweet your questions right now to at PeopleG2 and put that hashtag talent talk and we'll try to feed them in as well as we go along. But Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. Again, I apologize for screwing up your name there, uh, but maybe you could tell everyone a little bit about yourself um, and what your company does, the Total Solutions Group. Absolutely. And you did my name very well, by the way. Most people uh, not even come close to as good as you just did, so no problem. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, for me, I've always been passionate about self-improvement, probably starting back to when I took a year off from high school, uh, from college, excuse me, my very first year, and recognized the power of personal development. I'd always been a student athlete was and played athletics in college and really saw the power of that, and that transitioned me into getting very passionate about organizational psychology and leadership psychology. And then seven years into my career, I, I started the Total Solutions Group after I left uh, the global training company, Dale Carnegie, with one simple premise that, you know, in the marketplace of talent development, org development, training, consulting, I mean, we can keep going on and on. There's a lot of great content and parts and pieces out there, but a true solution to me was missing in regards to not, not necessarily just the content. There's a lot of great content and value, but how is that delivered? How is that implemented? How does it embed itself in the fabric of that company with what they're already doing well, all those different dynamics, so it becomes sustainable and something they can take ownership of? And that's really why I started the company, was not just to be another vendor, but a company that really could be a partner to, again, build a solution they could take ownership of. And that's really starting from me when I was a, a, a college athlete all the way to now is kind of really the I guess you will, the overview of, of where things came from. Well, and certainly I can you can already sense the, the passion you have around this and, and your company, and, and that, that's really great to hear. So maybe we can kind of start with, you know, maybe the in this area. So maybe when an organization wants to transform itself into a stronger, more marketable organization, what are the areas that you think they really need to look at? That's such a great question. You know, I, I think there's two things. So one is the approach how they go about doing what you just alluded to in that great question, but then what do they focus on with that approach? So I think the approach, kind of that context, that operating system like we have in our phones before we start talking about the apps they have to build on, the, if you get that analogy, is you know first they have to focus on having that clarity as to, look, what is really most important for us and who we are, who we want to be, what needs we solve, what value we create. Are we clear on that? And is the rest of our organization clear on that so that they're not just doing jobs, but clearly aligning what they do in those jobs in those departments to that? So first is clarity in this approach. I think second is alignment. Okay, do people buy into that? And they just here for that paycheck. And that's okay. But at the end of the day, could there be more there for us and for them if they just were aligned and we you know, gave ourselves permission to fully align them to that? Next is one of the more obvious crux and crutches and challenges that we all go through, which is so critical, though, with accountability. So, okay, we're clear, we're aligned. How do we foster that accountability where people will follow through and we're not just following up with them so that we can then execute with the right precision and purpose? So that's the approach, clarity, alignment, accountability, execution. But then what do you do with that? 
to me, look, we could list many different things as to what do you need to then do with that approach. But to me, it starts with culture. Hey, what is that value and impact that we need to create today as an organization for our marketplace, for our customers? And what does that mean we need to be as an organization? How do we blend that into a fabric that allows our departments and people to succeed? That That's culture, where we're talking about value, not job description, impact, not to-do lists, et cetera. Strategy. Right, we can we can mix that in many different ways, but can we boil that down into one page that just clearly defines what's really most important? Where everybody, when they read it, they just get it, they see how they fit into it, and ultimately, it compels them as a department or business unit to do more. And the last is capability. How do we make sure that our business model for how we create value aligns to how we're structurally set up to be effective? So. Culture, strategy, and capability is the focus that the areas I alluded to before in terms of approach. If we approach those three things in the right way, that absolutely makes, to your point, that more marketable, stronger organization. So you, so you said a lot of exciting things in, in, in that response. And one of the things that kind of I picked up on that I'm assuming a lot of uh, companies might be able to at least begin with this area, and that is can you put it all on one page? This is almost like a lean model can you go back? Can you can you describe your culture in some way, whether it's a few words or a picture or however your company wants to do it? But can you do it on one piece of paper? And mm-hmm. and and does that then anyone who looks at that piece of paper do they get it right? Is it is it clearly kind of showcasing what what you mean from that? And if you can do that, if you can get to that exercise, I think you're on a pretty good you know track to do the rest of the things you talked about. That's usually where it's completely undefined. I mean, I've had so many CEOs, entrepreneurs tell me. You know, our culture is, and then they'll name their product, they'll talk about their product, they'll talk about, you know, they're, they have great people or whatever, but they're not really describing anything that actually revolves what their culture is, how people are interacting with each other, how do they get things done, how they deal with problems, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. And so that's a, like a really digestible nugget that you just brought up that maybe people could go home and or back to the office at least and, and, and work on right away. So I agree. And you know, it's funny you mentioned is that kind of lean agile approach, which I, I I'm a, such such I don't even say believer and I think live and breathe that every day because I think that that ability to have something that's dynamic and fluid and to me a one page and we both know it, that doesn't mean that your entire organization is reduced to one piece of paper uh, of course not financial scorecards and models and business plans and how do we improve and marketing I mean look there's more but to your point if you can boil that into one page that becomes kind of the epicenter the personal google if you will of how what you quote unquote search focus on filter through the context that platform, I think, is really key. It's it's just like in professional sports. The the you know we have the NBA playoffs going on right now. The main goal is to win the NBA championship. It's a pretty clear and defined goal that you could put into a one one hundredth piece of a paper. And there's probably some key tenants in in that team's approach that they could boil into one page. But then there's more detail that's needed. And we could list the many businesses and other industries that we could analogize to that. But one page that everybody from the front line to the top to, to the senior team, that that's the starting point. I agree with you. I think more organizations in the more complex, more dynamic, more overwhelming, more options, more knowledge, more resources, more changes, more, 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 
how do we filter the more into what makes sense to us? Because there's no lacking of knowledge, there's no lacking of options, there's no lack of ideas or ways in which to make things happen with the continued evolution of our workforce, our workplace, and technology. But that one page says, wait a minute, how do I simplify the complex? How do I make more meaningful the madness? And I think, to your point, that that's a huge piece that I think still to this day goes unnoticed. Yeah, yeah, and and if that one page just ends up being some attempt to be transparent, I mean, you brought up the the uh, sports analogy. I mean, we we all sort of understand what what they're trying to do. So, if we use the NBA as an example, they're trying to win the NBA championship, and it's very transparent how they're trying to do it by the coach they hire and how you know the announcers will you know go into deep diatribes about that person's experience if they're a defensive minded coach or an offensive minded coach whatever it may be and so then the then the players that they bring in and the draft picks they make it's very very clear and talked about over and over and over again what they're trying to do if that kind of clarity was in an average company i mean wow people would probably have a much different take on their jobs it would probably really help cuz i doubt most people have any idea what the CEO is really thinking and why they hired this person and what they're going to bring to the company and what, what your sales goals are, are and what, where you're trying to go as a company. It, a lot of times it's very hidden. It's very, um, you know, only on a need to know basis, right? And so the rest of the company walks around trying to do their job with, with, with blinders on, essentially. We don't have that kind of transparency. Did you agree with that? A hundred percent. To me, every success and just for sake of the focus of what we're talking about organizationally, but this is true individually as well, it begins with clarity. It ends with clarity. You know, they always say cash flow is king, right? We, we, we hear that in business. We know that in business. But I always say context is critical, where that clarity, that context, that what shapes what we do, to your point, allows someone not to just look at it as, well, I went to your point. Let's say I run a business unit. Well, my business unit in our three geographies were successful. But let's say the organization was not because of maybe some best practices or some or some ways in which to create some operational excellence, but there was a lack of clarity because, as we both know, the issues of people still working or departments working in silos is still prevalent because of the constant complexity and just volume of what we all are trying to get done in a day, in a week, in a month, etc. But that transparency, that clarity to say, wait a second, wait a minute, what is really most important here? What does that mean? How does that mean and relate to what we're trying to do? Are there some opportunities for us to better align and collaborate? And if so, what impact could that have? What short-term changes will we have to make in it? You know, it's just that ability to be clear on what is really most important, but then asking the questions like what we're doing right now to further delve into that. I think that becomes the last thing organizations do is create clarity internally because we're so busy trying to get things done, move things forward, put out fires. I don't have enough time in the day. I mean, all the advent and adages that people say when they get nuts and overwhelmed, which I'm sure we both do as well. Yeah. But yeah, it's <laughs> me if we just take the time. And I'm not saying hours. It could be like we talked about in one page and in a frequent weekly, monthly, quarterly. Okay, how do we structure a, a small and maybe a little bit larger segment of time over the course of the frequency of our fiscal year to just take a step back and reconnect people to what has just happened and what's going on going forward, whether it's day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, or mix that message. That's where transparency becomes an act of the business versus some artificial horizon we're swimming to in the ocean. And we both know if you do that in an ocean, you're never going to get there. (laughs) It's just a visual mirage that says, I'm going to get to that horizon. No, you won't. And that's the same with transparency unless we say, wait, how do I 
I put this into play in a way that doesn't impede my business, but helps just, if you will, move me forward? And I think that, to me, is one of the most critical things now, and it will get even more needed, is having that transparency you talked about. Right, right. Well, you know, one of the things you and I have in common is we have the privilege of being able to do some public speaking. And I know the, but the, the difference here is you're, seems like you're really good at it. You're one of the highest ranked speakers for Sherm. So what are some of the topics that you really focus on that you're most passionate about when you're out there speaking to HR pros and CEOs and people like that? I appreciate that. You know, I, I, one of the, one of the key, I guess, tenants for me when going to speak at a conference, could be keynote, could be breakout, it could be a pre-conference, whatever it might be, is there's a lot of topics we all could go listen to or talk about, right? You know, areas that make up, and we'll keep it obviously, of course, to business. But to me, it goes back to what you and I were just talking about before, which is, well, what is that context that when they leave that session, right, and they, number one for me is always about how do they integrate it to what is really going on in their organization, and they clearly define that, even though it's just a keynote or breakout, I'm all about like, how are you going to take ownership and make this a value versus, oh, that was great, and then you do the standard trick-or-treating at the rest of the sessions, which isn't a bad thing to trick-or-treat, but like in trick-or-treating, your, your bag is full of candy, you go home, you unpack the bag, half the candy you throw away, half of it, you, or 30% you forget to eat, 20 because it's just overwhelming. So how do you make use of that? And that context, to me, is most critical before even thinking about, all right, what topic do I want to go and speak about to best support that conference is, how do I make sure to give people a context that this can not just be a value from what they hear from me, but how that lends itself to all the other sessions and breakouts they do, because probably like you, you go to a conference, you get workbooks, and you get notes, and you take notes, and you get stuff in the exhibit hall, and then there's this bag that just sits there in your office because you don't have time to process it. So that's the first thing is that context, and that's the same thing we do with companies too, is what is that operating system that's going to ensure what we do? Forget impacting the business. You're just going to take ownership of first and foremost so that there's a, a sustainable path for us to be successful. But then from a topic standpoint, if I were to boil it down, and it's a great question, if I just try to reduce it to three things, it probably going back to what you asked me before about, you know, what to transform an organization to make itself stronger. It's definitely culture, which is a big topic, but how to really build that to that clarity we just spoke of. I think strategy, and going back to that point, how do you, even if you don't right now have the ability to influence or impact the full global side, or even if you are a senior leader, but it's just still a monstrous thing to take on, how do you really take more of that lean, agile approach you and I spoke about, which is to say, all right, how do I influence from the ground up? How do I, as opposed to influencing a long-term plan, which we've been trying to do for years in our company, okay, well, how do you influence more of a 30-day plan? And start to build the muscle to eventually, if you will, fully get stronger, going back to your earlier question, so that we're ready to do it versus maybe just jumping in. And that's sometimes the struggle for companies. Strategy is a great thing to do, but sometimes you have to build into it by being strategic, but in time frames that are more digestible to build that, if you will, organizational muscle to think as a collective group, not just via the three, five, or six top people to do so. And then capability. And capability isn't just about how do you train and develop people, but how do you align that to the right processes, the right structure so that the organization can be successful. And I think just to, as a quick closing point to this question, it's 
we all are about developing our people, improving our people, talent management, obviously, right? Talent talk, right? This this show. How do we, though, ensure that the talent we develop, though, translates to the capability the organization needs? And that I can develop the best and brightest people, and so can you. That doesn't mean, though, that that's going to lend itself to success for the organization. So how to really translate that to capability so that, again, we're taking ownership of what the business needs and how I fit in versus I need to be a better communicator, I have to sell better, I have to better R&D, engineer, whatever it might be. So that, that's, that's that last piece. So it's culture, strategy, and capability. I think at the end of the day is probably where most of my sessions or talks probably revolve around. And then to kind of, you know, catapult off of that, I know you're also an adjunct uh, faculty member at Ryder University. And I've heard a lot of people on this show talk about how business schools in particular probably need to be revamped because <laughs> oh, they're still sure. teaching some pretty outdated old sort of models and are reinforcing some very old models, some command and control stuff that really doesn't apply to, you know, our, our, the best of the best of what companies are doing now. So I'm really kind of fascinated as to maybe what are some of the things that you're teaching students or you're talking about or identifying and really asking them to develop and strengthen in their own leadership skills so when they leave that school, they're ready to, to actually perform and maybe elevate you know, the, the level of, of what we're doing as within the, whatever organization they're in. Great question. Great question. I, I know One quick note here is I, be, I really do and I'm very passionate about higher education. I do believe it's a platform that has still so much tremendous potential and certainly being one that who graduated from a university called Kutztown University and I'm on the advisory board for their College of Business and leading and doing some great things and it's an honor to do that. I loved my time as a student both in the classroom, outside the classroom all all those things combined but to your point, there's still a lot of outdated components and still a lot of, of, of blind spots that students are missing. And so when I worked with Ryder and gave my time, oh, God, probably eight or nine years ago to help build their leadership skills program, and they're, as a result, their leadership development department and programs are one of the top 25 in the country for universities. And it's, one, it's based on really the simple premise, which is, look, besides the topic nature of business, right, as you spoke about, for me, when I go to work with students, one of the things I'm most proud that I've created there from scratch is, okay, first, although there's a lot of ways to do this, what is your vision? What are your long-term goals? But not just via nature of like whiteboarding and vision boarding and great creative constructs, but how do you turn that into a plan that isn't going to pigeonhole you to this is your life, but gives you, again, that operating system, that platform to understand how you can take your ideas and vision not just make it into reality, but put it into a framework that you feel you're taking ownership of your undergrad, graduate, or beginning of your career, where you're not just going for a job, but you're really taking ownership to create value for that company. Don't. This isn't a game of chess where just because you happen to get a job title called pawn, that's the only part and place you can move. In chess, that's that's true. Certain certain positions, certain movement pattern. In business, yes, you have to learn and respect the process, but you have to really take ownership. So that's the first thing is that vision, plan, the construct of really how to take ownership, but then building that quote-unquote, which is very popular and needed, personal brand, but in a way in which that it understands how do you position yourself about value creation, not here's my experience, here's what I can do. That means nothing unless it creates value for you in the company. So vision, value creation, if I could boil it down. The second part of that is how they communicate. Communication is such 
to me, the number one, and will continue to evolve as the number one critical need for companies because of technology, because of social media. All those things are great. But for students who are growing up today in an ever-connected world where assignments and, and presentations are either posted online, done online, you know, more and more students are taking their master's programs online, which is great. And that's not just the you know, University of Phoenix who pioneered that, but you have a lot of schools that are, are doing master's pro- That's all great. Wonderful option. But does that teach me how to communicate, deal with stress and conflict, how to deal with different people, especially if I'm an undergrad? No. So communication is number two. And then the last thing, which is pretty obvious, but I'm still fascinated how the career uh, departments at these schools are teaching them how to market themselves. It's scary. (laughs) It's probably the best word I could use. But how do they really market themselves or beyond the resume, beyond the job interview? How do you really position yourself both in person but also beyond that, again, around what kind of value and position that you're looking to create for that company so that it's not just about I'm a person, this is the job I'm looking for, and then you're a commodity. It's like another gas station at the corner. How do you really distinguish yourself beyond that? So. Vision, value creation, communication, and marketing themselves are really the core things that, that I focus on. It's been amazing to see the value that students have gotten. And more importantly, jobs and grad schools they've gotten into as a result because they understand they have ownership now. They can really dictate a path for themselves and not just feel like they have to go down a path that they've been told to do. Yeah, I mean, I've had so many entrepreneurs, CEOs tell me that they really try to hire for talent. They don't experience part is it's hard to find it's hard to really even correlate properly so they can find someone who has the talents that they need that's what they get excited about so to your point they need to be showing and demonstrating what their talents are in a way that makes sense Uh, and and probably for anyone who's you know pretty young on a low when i say low i mean like younger on the millennial scale they probably need to demonstrate what skills they have that are pretty marketable that maybe fall outside of that stereotypical millennial label. I mean, I know companies that have to have um, classes on how to deal with conflict, how to use a regular telephone, stuff like that, or else they lose people because they don't know how to do that stuff. And those are pretty extreme examples. But, you know, you got to maybe go back to basics and make sure you establish the baseline of what you're good at, what you know how to do, what you excel at. So they know if you're going to be a good, a, a, a potential good fit, right? To move on to the next level. That, that, that's kind of what I'm getting from, from you and you know, a little, little bit of my opinion so, there, I guess. Absolutely. You're so spot on with what you just said because the nature of technology is to do what? Advance and, and accentuate what it is that we're already doing, not replace. Now, granted, there's a lot of technology we could discuss that is replacing and improving, no question. But in the true nature of I as a human being and professionally wanting to succeed and create opportunity, not just for myself, but really challenge myself to do something, if you will, either better for the world or whatever I I might be passionate about, technology is only going to accentuate that so far. It's only going to leverage me so far. I have to have the ability in a normal human interaction, like you and I right now, we're having a conversation. Like, that ability, I'm not trying to belittle college students, because, again, I'm very passionate about higher education, but I think, to your point, the conflict resolution, the communication skills. I mean, who, when we were going to college, ever talked about helicopter parents, where parents were so overarching and running their, their, their students, I won't say their lives, but to the degree of where, even in college, you've got parents that are calling the professors, because the student, whether it's confidence, whether it's just not that, that experience, the, the parent is now handling that. And, and we didn't talk about that 15, 20. 
20 years ago. All of that stuff is not bad. It's just the reality to what your point is, is really accentuating that skill that is not about what is around me, but what's within me. And how do I bring that out to the world to show I have value? So that's, you, you, you said it very well. Yeah, it, it is a totally different uh, sort of experience. I mean, I, I hadn't heard of anyone's parents calling the professors in college. That, that That's getting kind of scary. I, I remember in college being sick for like two weeks, and my, all of my other classes, it didn't matter if I was there or not, but I had one class, attendance did matter. I remember like bringing a note from my mom, like the doctor, like to prove that I really was sick, and the guy looked at me like I was crazy, like, I don't want to know from your mom. You know, you're 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 an adult, like you know. But nowadays, it's, I think that may be shifting. <laughs> if you've got parents calling college professors, that's just that that's crazy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, we're getting almost here to the end. I want to make sure we ask one of our favorite questions, and that is: Is there a book that you're reading right now that you might share with us? Yeah, that's a great question. So I am looking right now in my office here at my library, and it's it's probably one of my most prized possessions. I still love hard books. Uh, I do love, uh, going back to technology, I do love stuff on my iPad or my Surface, but I still love hard books. And the one book that to me is, is the one I'm reading now, and frankly, I've actually already read twice, but it's such a great book. It's called The Experience Economy uh, by Pine and Gilmore. That's G-I-L-M-O-R-E. To me, it's a phenomenal book, and I think it's just, to me, like Good to Great Was or In Search of Excellence or Seven Habits, we could keep going. To me, it should be, and hopefully will be, one of those classic books that's revered for years because it really breaks down the the external side, but really you can translate to the internal side that we are in an experiential world. It is about how we... Like a true business model framework is. It's not just about how we create value, but how do we deliver in a way that's going to generate the impact we want. And it just is a phenomenal dive and pragmatic way to, to really look and overlap one's, doesn't matter the size of the company, one's own business into how do we really deliver experiences that set a stage for people to be compelled to want to learn more, do more, or take action with us, like Disney, right? Go to Disney, you go on the ride, you exit through the gift shop, right? One of the most classic business models of, you know, capitalize and optimize the experience because people want to take something home with them. Well, this book does a phenomenal job of just really opening up not just other examples, but a framework that is just so, to me, transformative, it just because of the simple nature of when you look at it, you're like, wait a minute, I've seen the world through that lens before. I never thought of it as consistently as that. So that would be one I'd highly recommend uh, out there because I think it's one that just opens the door on the culture we certainly want to have externally in our marketplace with our customers. But if you think about it, it's also the same thing we need to do internally for our, our people as well. Final question, and that is, uh, how can people get a hold of you and find out more about uh, the Total Solutions Group? Sure. I, no, I appreciate that very much. And thank you so much for having me. This was a real honor, and I, and I enjoyed this. Probably could have gone for three hours and would have felt like five minutes with you. So you, you, were, you were great. So uh, where the, how they can connect with us to see how we could potentially be of value to them is they can go to our website, uh, www.tsg. So T is in Tom, S is in Sam, G is in Go. Total stands for Total Solutions Group. Results. That's with an S at the end, dot com. So tsgresults.com. And they can certainly see kind of on the home site there, like a kind of a powerful, fun intro video that kind of shares a little bit more. But then if they click a link on the right where it says your first step, if they just want to kind of share their top goals, their top needs, what they're looking for, they can submit that because it's all about how we can add real value, not do talks, not do lectures. And uh, that's how they can certainly reach out to us. And if they want to reach out and call us as well, they can find that on there as well. 
Well, Jack, thank you again so much for being on the show and being my guest today. And we'd love to have you come back and give us uh, some more thoughts and insights and an update uh, somewhere in the future. It was a real honor. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a, a great show, and you're doing a phenomenal job. I really enjoyed it. Well, I appreciate the feedback, and I loved having you on the show. So thank you all for listening, and hopefully you've gained something that you can use in your own career in a positive way. Uh, next week, our guests will include Joe uh, Gerstand, and the author and an advisor for uh, Wally Hawk, and then an employee engagement expert and facilitator of change for optimum leadership. So uh, between now and then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2.